Our Old Testament reading today is from the book of Jeremiah, the first chapter, verses 4 through 10. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, O Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations, over kingdoms, to pluck up and break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. The word of the Lord. Today's psalm is Psalm 71, verses 11 through 20. We will read responsibly by whole verse. Go not far from me, O God, my God, make haste to help me. Those who are my adversaries be confounded and perish. Let those who seek to do evil be covered with shame and dishonor. As for me, I will always patiently abide and will praise you more and more. My mouth shall speak daily of your righteousness and salvation, for I know not the end of them. I will go forth in the strength of the Lord God and will make mention of your righteousness, yours alone. You, O oh God, have taught me from my youth. Even to this day, I am telling of your wondrous works. Forsake me not, O oh God, in my old age, when I am gray-haired, until I have proclaimed your strength to this generation and your power to all those who are yet to come. Your righteousness, O oh God, reaches to the heavens. You have done great things. Who is like you, O God? Oh, what great troubles and adversaries you have shown me. And yet you have turned and refreshed me. Indeed, you have brought me again from the depths of the earth. You have brought me to great honor and confronted me on every side. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our Old Testament reading today is, excuse me, our New Testament reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 10 to 17. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to you to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I, be, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you, then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, 
to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. The word of the Lord. The gospel lesson this morning comes from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and then verses 27 through 32. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Glory Glory to you, Lord Lord Christ. Christ. On one occasion, when the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little bit from the land. And he sat down, and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, so much that their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in another boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both of the boats so that both the boats began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats into land, they left everything and followed him. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in his tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made for him a great feast in his house. And there was a large number of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to to you, Lord Lord Christ. Christ. Continuing in our sermon series on Luke, this is one of those passages where every single one of the gospels, all four gospels has some version of this story of Jesus calling his disciples. Sometimes one by one, sometimes as a group, but anytime that all of the gospels include a particular story, it's definitely a good one to focus in on because this is clearly an important part of Jesus's ministry and building his kingdom. So why, why is this a big deal? Why why does every single gospel have this kind of story in it? You know, we we don't really get any similar stories like this in the Old Testament. We, We get a lot of bloodlines and a lot of genealogies, but there's no stories about kings or prophets kind of gathering their guys. And, and there's really no similar stories like this in the New Testament. We get, we get little stories about the gospel spreading in Acts, and, and we get things about new churches being planted and connections being made. But there was no, there's never a story about um, how John Mark, who was a follower of Paul, eventually went and followed Peter and then ended up writing the Gospel of Mark, which was probably just the, the preaching notes of Peter. Or, or we don't get a story about how Luke, the guy who wrote this book, was um, how he joined up with Paul 
We just heard that he was. So this kind of gathering story is unique to the gospels and to Jesus and to his disciples. Why do all four gospel writers feel the need to tell us who Jesus's followers were and to give us at least some story about how he gathered them? Well, two things to think about when you hear this story. First is this is probably meant in some way to strengthen our faith. I mean, the, the Bible is again, primarily not a story about us. It's a story about Jesus. And so if it's in there, it has to be important somehow to strengthen our faith that Jesus is who he says he is and that he's done what he said he would do. But then, then there's the second component and there's always the kind of how then should we live now? It's not, it's not the most important thing, but it is important. What should, what should this story tell us about our own story? So two things to look at. What does this mean for Jesus' story? What does this mean for our story? The story the Gospels is telling is the story of the kingdom of God breaking into this world. And not just breaking in, but spreading. So far in Luke, Jesus has been baptized. He has started teaching and healing up in the area around Galilee, kind of the, the Jewish section in the north of Israel. His fame was spreading and people in that area were starting to know who he was. So he comes to this sea at Gennesaret, which is something between like a small sea and a really big lake. And he comes up on these fishermen. He climbs into one of their boats and he asks them, they're, they're out of the boat, right? They're, they're, getting, they're cleaning their nets. They're done with their work for the day. They're about to wrap up. He climbs into one of the boats and says, can you just push out a little bit from the shore? And the interesting thing is, and it's never, it's never commented on, is they actually agree. They do it which probably means that either they knew who Jesus was already because we know that his fame was spreading, or maybe they were just really agreeable people. I mean, this definitely was a time and a place where kind of communal living and shared obligation to one another was bigger than it is in our day. There haven't been a, a ton of societies throughout history that are as disconnected as we are. So it's, easier, it's easy for us to imagine a, a more integrated and, and mutually connected society like this. But anyway, Jesus gets in the boat, says, can you push out a little bit? And Peter does it. Peter pushes the boat out and Jesus then uses this as a teaching platform. People are gathering on the shore and he spends some time teaching them. And then after he had finished speaking, maybe as a way of saying thank you, maybe as a way of starting to show these guys who he really was, he says, put down your nets into the deep part of the water, see if you can catch any fish. Peter replies, sir, we've been working all night. We haven't caught a single thing. We really just want to be done. And, and every time I read this passage, I have the same reaction. I, I've felt like Peter before. Maybe you felt this too, but maybe you tend to react better than I have in the past. You know, I'm, I'm working on something, something that I actually know a lot about. And someone else comes along who I don't think is as much of an expert in it as I do. And, and he comes along and he says, hey, Hey, you know, you know what I would do with this? And it's like, okay, that's, that's fantastic advice. Guy who has no idea what I'm doing. Thank you so much. Like Peter's been a fisherman. His father was probably a fisherman. His father's father was probably a fisherman. And yet here comes this guy, this rabbi of some renown. And he says, you know what I would do is um, go out and put your nets down again. But Peter doesn't get exasperated. Peter just says, well, because you have told us to do it, master. And the, the word master there is sort of like honored teacher or respected tutor. He says, because you have said to do it, we'll go let our nets down one more time. And then, and then these nets that had been empty all night long are suddenly 
bursting with fish. That so much so that they have to signal to their friends in other boats to come and help them pull this catch of fish up. They literally have caught so much, they can't deal with it all to the point that when they pull the fish into the boat, the boats actually sink down into the water. And you can picture them absolutely elated. I mean, this could be, this could be money for a month. This is an unprecedented catch of fish. You can picture them overjoyed, but Simon Peter sees things very differently. And in that moment, he gets a clue that this Jesus might not just be some other teacher, not just another traveling preacher. Because when Peter saw it, this is verse 8, when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, Lord. I'm not saying in that moment that Peter knew that Jesus was the promised Messiah. I'm certainly not saying in that moment that, that Peter knew that Jesus was the son of God. But it was clear that he knew that this was a holy man, probably at minimal a prophet, certainly someone that God was, was using in, an, in a supernatural and uncommon way. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. I'm not even fit to be in the same place as you. I recognize your goodness. And, and I'm also pretty clear about the fact that I am not fit to hang out with you. Clearly, Jesus has abilities that Peter does not. And Peter might be saying, if we hang out long enough, Jesus, you might start to see exactly what kind of man I am. And I do not want that. So let's just be done with this right now. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. But then Jesus uses this miracle to actually draw them in further. So we see at least three people are in this audience that Jesus is speaking to, Peter, James, and John, or what would later on become known as the three. See, because Jesus always had kind of layers of his disciples. He has these three guys that were his best friends that he hung out with the most often, his most trusted guys, Peter, James, and John. And then he had this group of 12 guys who were following him, and, and living their life with him, the 12 disciples. Then he had 72 disciples that, ends up, that end up being sent out. And then he had hundreds and maybe thousands of followers. But these three, Peter, James, and John, came to be known as, um, as Jesus's most trusted guys. And here they are in this boat. Three fishermen overwhelmed by this clear display of either knowledge of the future, because Jesus knew that there were going to be fish out there, or maybe even command over the created elements themselves, or both. And so Jesus says, maybe, maybe to calm them down, maybe to actually kind of hype them up about what they were about to do. Jesus says, don't be afraid, because from here on out, you're not going to be catching fish. You're going to be catching men. And when they get to shore, they left everything, including this potentially year-changing catch of fish that they had just got. When they got to shore, they left everything and they followed him. And that word followed here is really one to key in on. It's not just that, you know, Jesus went east and they went east. It's not just that they trailed along after him. They, it means that they obeyed him. They apprenticed themselves to him. They became his, his disciples, his adherents. And so one miracle, one short conversation with Jesus, they leave everything in their lives behind to become disciples of Christ. This is the power of being called by Jesus. And, and this is a, a little bit of the pedigree 
of the guys who grew up, who ended up being the apostles, the founders, the leaders of the church. And so I think that in this, because every gospel tells this story, I think that part of the reason is to say, not only can we trust Jesus, but we can also trust those who he has sent because he called them individually. And so after all this, we see another picture of Jesus calling someone and how they respond. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. This is verse 27. Saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. This guy, Levi, who in all likelihood is the same person as Matthew, as in the gospel according to Matthew. He's, he's sitting there at his work, doing his job. His job was a, uh, a publican or a tax collector. And he was sitting there collecting taxes. And Jesus walks by, turns to him and says, follow me. And off Levi goes, leaves everything behind to follow Jesus. There is a, um, there's a great story, uh, I'm sorry, a great scene in the West Wing TV show from about 20 years ago, where one guy who's a corporate lawyer is sitting in his corporate law office, having a corporate law meeting, and he doesn't want to be there. And then suddenly his buddy comes in to talk to him about this man running for president. And with just one look, our corporate lawyer sitting there looks up, sees his friend, sees the expression on his face, stands up, walks out of the meeting. And on his way out, he kind of looks at the, the papers and the computer and everything on the desk. And he just kind of makes a look like I'm not going to need any of this anymore. And he just walks out and walks into his new life. He doesn't even bother to gather up his stuff. That's what I think of when I, when I read this thing about Levi. And I, I might accidentally call him Matthew because church history and everything tells us the same guy. But anyway, Levi. Levi is a tax collector, a guy who to most Jews would have been seen as nothing short of a traitor to his own people. He was a, a turncoat for the Roman Empire, somebody willing to do the oppressor's dirty work against his own people in order to make himself rich. So Benedict Arnold in the Revolutionary War or the, the Vichy regime in, in France in World War II, just people that no one likes. And this is the guy that Jesus calls. I mean, it's not like he was out at the market or sitting in front of his house. Like it is clear that this is a tax collector. He's sitting in his tax collector booth and this is the guy that Jesus calls, this traitor, this turncoat. And not only that, but Levi immediately leaves what he, we have to imagine is his cushy job, leaves everything behind, stands up and follows Jesus. And then he goes one better. He decides to host a giant feast at his house. Levi, being a tax collector, was probably rich. And if he was, then the money that he had was ill-gotten money taken from his countrymen for the, for, the, um, for the benefit of the Roman oppressors. And so that's the money that he's using to host this great big feast for this holy man of God this rabbi who is also somehow a prophet and may actually be more than that. Verse 30, the Pharisees and all their scribes grumbled at his, at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with sinners and tax collectors? Tax collectors and sinners, that's a phrase that you hear sometimes throughout the gospels or even in church. Traitors, scumbags. This is how Jesus is assembling his team, apparently. He's starting off his kingly reign by calling traitors and scumbags to follow him. And what does Jesus say? 
He says, those, are, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but come to call sinners to repentance. People who think they have it all together in this world have a much, much harder time seeing their need for Jesus. People who think that, well, I'm, I'm basically a good person. And yes, I do bad stuff occasionally because everybody does, but probably on balance, I'm doing more good than bad in the world. Kind of a, a B minus sort of thing. I think God's probably okay with me. People like that have a really hard time seeing their need for a savior. But as the author Jack Miller said, cheer up, you are a worse sinner than you ever dared to imagine. And the message there is that Jesus is, the message that Jesus is giving here is that all of us, every single one of us are tax collectors. All of us are sinners. Some of us realize it, some of us never do. For those who know that they are sick, they understand their need for a physician. For those who know that they are dead inside, they understand the need for a life giver. And I only actually said half of that Jack Miller quote. The whole thing is, cheer up. You are a worse sinner than you ever dared to imagine, and you are more loved than you could ever dare to hope. And that's what it means for Levi and for Peter, James, and John, and for you and for me. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It happens when you realize that you are desperate. You are desperately in need of a doctor. And then we're presented with the great healer. It realizes that you know that on your best day, your heart and your mind turn to sin more than you even realize. And yet we're then presented with a redeemer. You know that you are far from God and then we're presented with a reconciler. When you're a follower of Jesus, you are in his presence. You're in his presence in the same way that an apprentice is in the presence of the master, the leader, watching from him, learning from him, being trained by him and taught by him and cared for by him. And being in the presence of a holy God can be very jarring. So much so that it can even be off-putting, like it was with Peter, who instead of rejoicing that this guy, this prophet, this, this magic man had taken time to, to spend with them, he said, no, depart from me. I am a sinful man. Jesus calls us to himself. And standing that close to the light is going to reveal every single one of our flaws. But the important thing to know here is that he actually calls us. He knows about our flaws, and yet he calls us anyway. When he called Peter, he knew that Peter was a sinful man. He knew all the dumb stuff that Peter was going to do. He knew that Peter was going to pull, pull out his sword and cut off the ear of the guys who were trying to arrest Jesus, even though Jesus said not to. He knew that Peter was going to reject Jesus and claim three times that he didn't even know who he was on the night that he was going to be crucified. He knew all that, and he called him anyway. When Jesus called Levi, he knew what Levi was like. He knew that Levi was a, a tax collector and that he ripped off his own countrymen. He knew and he called him anyway. And friends, it is the exact same thing with you. God calls you, knowing exactly who you are, God still calls you to be in community with him. And that's the amazing thing is Jesus was not saying, he wasn't saying, okay, learn these things and then I'm going to leave and you can just go on with your life. He wasn't giving instructions. He was saying, follow me, walk with me, live with me, 
let's do this together. He was calling them into community with himself. And that's what God does for each of us, where we are fully known and yet fully loved. The holiness of God can shine a glaring light on every single thing about me. And yet I know that Jesus still calls to me saying, follow me, do this with me, be in community with me. But that's not all because God not only calls us into community with himself, he also calls us into community with one another. Jesus is gathering his followers. He's saying to all these different people, come and follow me. And they leave everything and they follow him. But it's not just, it's not just a series of like one-on-one discrete relationships with Jesus. It's not like Jesus is up here and all the disciples are down here and there's just one line between each of them up to Jesus. This is an interconnected web, which basically means this is a family. We're called into community with one another. And so first Jesus calls Peter and his friends, the brothers James and John. So already that's a, that's a group. They've already got relationships with each other, so that's great. But then consider Levi. Jesus sees Levi, he says, follow me. And Levi's first thing is to throw a feast for Jesus. And we know that his other disciples were there because the Pharisees were grumbling to his disciples. So imagine the the ones he's already called, Peter, James, and John. Imagine them who are working men who would have to pay taxes to a tax collector and probably he wasn't their best friend in the world. Now all of a sudden they're getting invited to a feast at the house of a tax collector attended primarily by other tax collectors. And yet here they are because they have a shared devotion to Jesus. They have a shared mission. They have this shared new purpose that was so exciting for them that they left their entire lives behind. We want to be followers of Jesus. That's what they had in common. People with nothing in common, people with nothing in common except those couple of things can build rich community together. Different backgrounds, different vocations. If they have the same, if they have the same devotion to Jesus, if they have the same mission and purpose, then they become this same new family that Peter, James, John, and Levi were. And we know this because Jesus would later say of his disciples, the people who were following him, he would turn to them and he would say, These here are my brothers and my sisters. He was creating a new covenant family, a family of tax collectors and sinners, a family of people who know that they need a doctor and then who get to rejoice with each other because the great healer is in their midst with them. Because this is the important thing to remember when we think about what Jesus came to do. We are not just called out of something, but we are called into something as well. I didn't understand this for most of my life. Christianity is not just something that we are called out of. It's something that we're called into. It's not just something that we're saved from. If if Christianity is just Jesus forgives my sins, if it's just something that we're saved from, then, then Good Friday should be the biggest party of the year because that's the day when my debt was paid on the cross, when Jesus died for my sins and I get a clean slate and I'm good. So if Christianity is just something that we're saved from, then Good Friday should be the highlight of our year, but it isn't. And I couldn't figure out why for the longest time. Because I didn't realize that as a follower of Christ, I was not just called out of something. I was not just being saved 
from my sickness by the great healer, but I was being called directly, positively into something. I was being called into being a citizen of the kingdom of God. And I was being called into this new, weird, messy resurrection family. I was being called into doing life together. There's a, a great story about Steve Jobs, who was, uh, who's the, the who was the founder of Apple. Uh, in the early 80s, Apple had started and it was going well, but they really needed kind of a, a boost to take them to the next level. And so Steve Jobs went shopping around for a new CEO for Apple, uh, somebody with, with marketing smarts, somebody who could kind of really propel them. And so he went and he interviewed uh, John Scully, who was the head of Pepsi. And at the end of the interview, John said to Scully, he looked him, he said, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life? Or do you want to come with me and change the world? And Scully took the job. And it's a great story. It's a little bit self-important because really it's just going from one company that sells something to another company that sells something. I mean, I, I don't know that he could say that he was going to go change the world, but the impact of that was that this guy left behind his incredibly cushy job and went to this little startup company because he saw something there. God calls us not just out of where we are, but he calls us into something new. He calls us out of our sinful stories into his redemption story, calling us out of enslavement to sin into this shared idea of self-giving love in a new covenant family. I have to imagine the disciples quarreled among themselves. I mean, they had to have. There's a, an expression that says that the definition of human conflict is two people in the same county. And so 12 guys together for three years, of course they fought. They were so different. There had to be tension and conflict. And, and at least one of them was a zealot, which means that uh, that was actually a, a political party that was, that was uh, ultra-nationalistic and, and advocating the violent overthrow of the Roman oppressors. And one of them, Levi, was a tax collector which means that he was a direct employee of those Roman oppressors. So that alone, you have to assume that there's some tension there. And that's to say nothing of just the petty squabbling, differences of opinion that come up in any group of people. But we also know that they stuck together. For three years of having no home, <laughs> no funding, and wandering around Israel, they stuck together. Not only that, but they stuck together after Jesus's death, resurrection, and ascension. They stuck together as founders of this new covenant church, and they stuck together as that church spread outward, and every single one of them, we think, we're not 100% sure, every single one of them ended up being killed for being part of this New Testament, new covenant family. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that when Christ calls a person to himself, he calls them to come and die, which is stark. But it's also true. Christ calls us to die to self, to die to our desires, to die to our old life, to basically be willing to stand up, leave everything behind, and follow him. Jesus said, if anyone would accompany me, he must take up his cross daily and be my apprentice. So the life that we're called into really is true resurrection life. And it's, it's true community because Jesus is in the midst of it communion with Jesus and communion with other believers. But it is not necessarily an easy life because 
It is a self-giving life. It's a sacrificial life. It's a life where we spend putting Jesus first and everyone else second, and then we come in third. Pursuing deep discipleship with Jesus is it, it means being a close and attentive follower of him. And our life is also about pursuing deep community with one another, finding new ways to, to give of ourselves, of our time, of our treasure, of our lives to one another. So it is a life of sacrificing, but it's also, and we see this in Luke, it's also a life of feasting. It's a life of joy and laughter, even in the midst of aggressively, actively attempting to die to self. The Pharisees asked the disciples, why do you guys dine with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus, if I can paraphrase him just a little bit, Jesus basically says, because that's the only kind of people that there are. It's just that some of y'all realize this and some of you haven't yet. So when we are in community with Jesus, we are also in community with one another and we are called to be his followers. And we get to do this with him. It involves dying to self. It involves leaving, leaving what we want behind and putting what he wants first. But then the beauty of that is that we get to be part of this community banquet. We get to be part of this feast of, of sinners and apprentices of him. So come and eat with the king and his followers. Let me pray. God, we ask that you that we would that we would see the beauty of following you. That we would see it more clearly every day. Show us where where we are not um, pursuing you as your apprentices enough. Show us where we are not fully diving in to uh, dining with tax collectors and sinners. But most of all, Lord, thank you. Thank you that you truly are the, the great gatherer and the great healer, the great physician. And that you called us to you even when you knew exactly what kind of people that we were. In Jesus' name, amen.